the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. Thank you, sir, and a pleasant good afternoon. Welcome to this Thursday edition of Lifeline for the 23rd day of May. Trust you're having a great week so far. One more day. I talked with your boss. We're going to give you the weekend off. I've made arrangements to let you have Monday off. So it's it's all good. Memorial Day weekend, certainly a time for us to um, pause and remember those that have passed before us and to also salute those who have served our country, many of whom have died for the freedoms that we enjoy in America. Be mindful of that this Memorial Day weekend. Coming up later on in tonight's program, we're going to be joined in studio by Dr. Rick Durst. He is the director of the San Francisco Bay Area campus of Gateway Seminary. And we're going to spend some time talking about one of the fastest-growing religious viewpoints in America today. You want to even guess what that might be? I'll let you ponder that. And while you do so, we'll get to some other topics here. One that has been gaining a great deal of attention in the news. In fact, as recent as today, it was announced that the Centers for Disease Control could very well start enforcing so-called do-not-board or travel bans related to airlines. This in the wake of some reported 523 cases of the measles in New York City. Now, the anti-vaccination movement, to be sure, uh, has been gaining more and more momentum in the wake of proposals that we see in some major cities like New York and uh, their Bill de Blasio saying that they want to eliminate the religious belief exemption and even fine non-compliant parents up to $1,000, $2,000. Let's kind of cut through a lot of this and uh, with full disclosure that I'm a firm believer that it, in vaccinations are important. There's a long history of the value of vaccinations. Um, and yet, how far do we go when it comes to insisting that uh, people have their children vaccinated? And is there enough of a compelling public health concern here to eliminate religious exemption? Joining me now is Dr. Jane Orient, Executive Director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, a role that Dr. Orient has been in since 1989. She's the author of a number of best-selling books. She's also the editor of AAPS News and joins us now to discuss this very important topic. Uh, welcome again, Dr. Orient, uh, to the program. Let's talk a bit about this. Uh, we know that certainly prior to 1963, in the cases of, of uh, measles, there were on average about 4 million cases a year, although those that were reported to the CDC were significantly lower than that, and that since the development of the measles vaccination, there had been a steady 
decrease in the number of reported cases up until 1980, one of the lowest reporting years of only 13,506 cases. Um, Now we're seeing a jump, although I don't know that 523 cases in New York City necessarily raises us to the level of what some suggest to be almost pandemic levels. Your thoughts? Well, I think that there's a whole lot of panic over measles, but interestingly, there are more cases of mumps and there are measles, but there's not the uproar about that. And I think that's because most of the people who have mumps are fully vaccinated with MMR. And we don't really want to call attention to the fact that the MMR vaccine is not perfectly effective. Probably 25% or more of the people who get measles have been fully vaccinated, but the vaccine wears off after a time. And in New York, Bill de Blasio is even imposing fines on adults if they live in a certain zip code area who cannot prove that they have been vaccinated or immune to measles. I mean, we're not going to eradicate measles. Even places that have almost 100 percent measles vaccination still have outbreaks. Well, and clearly, you know, as much as we have lauded the um, the MMR vaccination going back to the 1960s, as I suggested, there's been no wise any declaration by modern science to say that we've completely eradicated it. So clearly, it, it, the history proves it's not 100 um, uh, percent guaranteed. But I'm, I'm 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 troubled by your suggestion that adults should have to be compelled to prove that they have been vaccinated. I wonder how many of us over a certain age even have access to medical records. My goodness, my pediatrician, I think, has been dead and gone probably 30 years. How do you even do that? Well, that's not my suggestion. That's Bill de Blasio. No, understood, understood. But I, rhetorically speaking, how do you even do that? Well, I think you can force everybody to get a shot, which is really good for Merck's profits. But I think something we need to consider is that there has been one death from measles in the past 10 years. That occurred in 2015. There have been reported more than 100 deaths after the MMR vaccine. Because not only is the vaccine not completely effective, it is not completely safe. And now California is eliminating most exemptions to the vaccine, including medical exemptions, so that children who have had one adverse reaction to a vaccine may be forced to get another dose for which the reaction could be even worse or else they won't be allowed to go to school. Where do we draw the line then trying to strike this balance between public health concerns, the rights, religious or otherwise, of the parents to vaccinate or not to vaccinate, and the individual concern over the health of the child, where, as you point out, in some cases, there's been already a negative experience with the vaccination. And so to be compelled by state authorities to have to vaccinate a child could obviously have a deleterious impact further on their health. Where do we strike the balance amongst all these choices? Well, it used to be thought that we have certain absolute rights, certain liberty rights, certain right to life, and that we can't say that we're going to override that because some the CDC has said you ought to have this particular vaccine. Um, if there is, is a true, clear, and present danger to public health, like with Ebola, or if you're, having, you're in an area where there's a measles outbreak, then you can isolate or quarantine people who have the disease 
or who might be particularly susceptible to the disease or have been exposed to the disease without forcing them to get an immunization that has a significant risk of harm. And some of the, the risks from the vaccine uh, can be life, lifelong disability or even death. That to prevent an illness that in 999 or 9,999 out of 1,000 or 10,000 people uh, recover without any complications and who then have lifetime immunity to the disease. I mean, the, the death rate from measles and infectious diseases was plummeting dramatically in the United States before any of these vaccines were available because of good hygiene, good sanitation, good public health measures, and, you know, to give the vaccines credit for saving, for saving us really would be, would be inaccurate. And I think that people are very concerned that the risk of the, of the vaccines is not being fully disclosed to people. And when we see the CDC stepping in, as they're suggesting, that they may begin to enforce uh, a so-called do-not-board list for those that they know have been positively um, exposed to the measles. I mean, w- w- what's, what's the practical application there? Is, is that, once again, overreaching, in your opinion? Well, I think it's, it's pretty drastic, and I'm not sure how they're, going to, uh, how they're going to enforce that. I mean, you have to go to the airport with your vaccination records or your or your antibody tests, or just if you come from a place where there's an outbreak of measles, like in the Philippines or Israel most recently, that's probably where most of the cases in, in uh, the Orthodox Jewish community in New York came from. So in your opinion, does this, does this sort of reignite the dialogue, and it's clearly a conversation that we have to have as there's been discussion about the impact of measles. We know that there have been certain cases, certain areas where there's been an uptick in the number of cases of polio, which for a time we thought practically, at least in the United States, have been entirely eradicated. And then there are these issues concerning parental rights, health rights, um, you know, certainly a lot of a lot of these issues from a medical standpoint uh you know have to be weighed against you know public health and individual rights is this time to really sit down as americans and have some serious dialogue on this topic yeah and i think some honest disclosure about the risks and benefits of vaccines i mean most cases of paralytic polio in the us resulted from the oral polio vaccine and most cases of polio-like illness now are, are, are not polio. Uh, we don't know what it's from, but uh, it could be from, from migrants coming in from Central America. We, we don't really know the answer to the question. We really don't know what causes that. There is no perfect, perfect protection against every infectious disease that there is. And could we be doing more harm than good? by enforcing vaccines on everybody. In Japan, they stopped mandating NMR vaccine. And their babies are healthier than ours. They've not had huge outbreaks of measles. Instead, it's a voluntary decision that uh, that you can make, that parents can make for their children. There are risks and benefits, and it depends a lot on the child. It depends on the, on the prevalence of the disease. If there hasn't been an outbreak in your area, then uh, is the risk of the vaccine worth it? A lot of people would say no. Why don't you discuss that with your doctor 
and not impose the government dictate from on high when a lot of these committees are just have pervasive conflicts of interest with companies that are immune from liability if their vaccine is harmful, even if they've been dishonest about the uh, the risks and benefits, you know, unlike any, any other drugs. And clearly, uh, Big Pharma has got a very strong vested interest in, in all of this. Well, as we say, it indeed is a topic that we need to explore as Americans much deeper, because right now there's just these sort of uh, pockets or isolated cases and and sometimes extreme reactions, as you're suggesting, as we're seeing in New York, for example, uh, that really haven't been fully discussed or vetted, uh, nor has there been full disclosure uh, from all sides on the topic. I'd like to thank Dr. Jane Orient for being with us, Executive Director of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons, for that quick update on the vaccination controversy. 517, let's get caught up on traffic for you right quick. We'll head over to the KFAX Traffic Center and get the latest. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right. Welcome back to the conversation. 22 minutes after the hour of 5 o'clock here on the Thursday edition of Lifeline. I posed a question at the start of the program, and uh, I guess we'll let the cat out of the bag now. The question that I asked was, uh, can you take a guess? Can you, can you hazard a guess at the fastest growing religious viewpoint in America today, and if you're like most people, you might think, well, maybe maybe it's Protestantism or Roman Catholicism, particularly with a lot of immigration coming from Central and South America, or maybe it's Judaism, or perhaps if we've seen trends um, in focus since 2001, the rise of Islam, or maybe it's a quasi-pseudo-religion like Scientology. Well, in fact, perhaps you'll be set back on your heels to know that research that has been released by uh, Pew Research indicates that the fastest-growing religious viewpoint in America today is none. That's right. In fact, survey taken in 2007, just a scant uh, 10, 11 years ago, had fully 35.6 million adults indicating that they had no religious viewpoint, no religious affiliation whatsoever. How startling has that number grown? Well, by 2018, that number had grown to 57.1 million Americans. That accounts for 23% of the U.S. adult population. So we've got a lot of nuns. The question is, what's driving these trends? And how much culpability can be laid squarely at the feet of the church? And when I say the church, I don't mean just the organism of the church or uh, the institution of the church, but, but each of us is the body of believers. We love Christ, and we are motivated to keep his commandments, then certainly the Great Commission is one of the greatest there that we are compelled to be engaged in. We should do it not because we're forced to do so, but we do it because we love Christ and and wish to share the good news. But have we been fully effective at disseminating that message? 
Joining me today in studio with some thoughts and insights is Dr. Rick Durst. He has a Ph.D. in historical theology from Golden Gate Seminary, better known today as Gateway Seminary. In fact, he is currently the director of the San Francisco campus of Gateway Seminary. He is a best-selling author and joins us today in studio. Dr. Rick Durst, good to see you again. Thank you, Craig. It's a pleasure to be here again. Commute was okay coming over here? Seven minutes. Yeah, I I heard there was a cat across the street that might have slowed things down a little bit. (laughs) Well, great to have you with us and and to share on this topic, which I I think ought to capture the attention of all of us, because we have historically certainly thought of America as a Christian nation, certainly its foundational roots, both in terms of the people that, that, that built the nation, our founding fathers, and the intent behind creating this place we call home, America, uh, was very firmly on a Christian foundation. And we have been historically the number one missions-sending nation in the world. All that to our credit. Um, But now we're beginning to see a, a major paradigm shift. And when you see the growth, not quite, but almost doubling in those who identify as having no religious affiliation whatsoever, I think ought to cause all of us within the church, the body of believers, to pause and say, wait a minute, what's happening here? And to what degree, if any, can we look at ourselves and say, maybe we're not doing the job we should be doing? Well, I think honestly, Craig, all of us as as Christians are self-reflective, and we're always finding points where we're out of sync and not doing as much as we could. All of us are over-occupied. We don't have space in our life to do things. I guess we're like the first two guys that meet the uh, um, the man who had been beaten up, and then the Good Samaritan comes and mm-hmm. finds space for that. And we're busy with churchy stuff when really, according to Jesus, people are our business, caring and loving, building relationships, sharing the gospel with people. I think there's so many nuns because they're not hearing any of the gospel. They're not getting exposed uh, to scripture. Uh, it's my privilege right now to be in a, in a Bible study where there's a number of people who are on first start journeys. And so they're picking up this monstrous book we call the Bible, and they're trying to get comfortable with it, and it's so complex. They're trying to learn how to pray in a way that's effective. So being able to nurture them and grow with them, it's a real privilege. And I think that needs to just happen in a lot of places because people, even though they have no affiliation, they won't identify because in the culture, it now costs you to identify with Christ. So I better be sure that Christ is real before I'm willing to pay that price just to take the name. I need to mean it. Uh, so... Um, Working with these uh, these folks, it's uh, it's pretty exciting. So it's not all bad news. I'll say it that way. You no, know, to be sure. And in fact, let me let me bring a little bit of balance to uh, this perspective because as much as we hear those numbers and go, oh my goodness, this is not encouraging at all. Today, the Christian Post reported that a survey that was released late April of 2019, so uh, just a scant few weeks ago, of 1,000 adults self-identified as evangelicals, now this is with a margin of error of plus or minus 3%, that of those, 53% millennials, ages 18 to 34, um, attend church weekly, and um, boomers, 
little higher, 54%. Gen Xers, 44%. And that number, I said 53, I correct myself, I can't read my own handwriting, is an increase from what had been 53% to now 61%. So there's an uptick in certain demographics in terms of their church attendance and engagement with the body of Christ on a regular basis, in this case, church attendance weekly. Uh, For those numbers, we can be encouraged. But it's the broader overreaching number of the U.S. population that is perhaps a bit troubling. Now, some might say it's it's part of the, the atmosphere, the culture and society in which we live today. I guess I would raise the question, is it a chicken came first or the egg came first in terms of um, has there been an atrophying of religious faith because of what's happening in society, or is what's happening in society because there's been an atrophying of religious faith, and as a result, the the salt and light is not as effective or as abundant as it used to be? Well, I like the question, and I'll, I'll give two answers to see which one you want to bite on. Okay. All right. <laughs> the historical answer is this. Um, America has regularly had major awakenings, and I think it's time for one now. Mm. Um, I was just thinking about uh, the period uh, turning 1800, 1805. Many people were were amazed at how people were turning away from the church uh, with the expansion of the West. Uh, and this, In that sense, uh, being focused on things other than God's will, God's work, God's covenant, uh, becoming wealthy, taking the most for the opportunities that are present you know, presented in the, in the Americas, you know, honestly, taking advantage of the Native Americans. But uh, God sent an awakening, and the Cambridge Revival, for one. And it was much more explosive and exciting. Okay, so that's one thing. I'll throw another uh, fish on the line. Um, I have a friend who's new to the Bay Area. He's a pastor uh, in, in the Bay Area, and his experience has been with churches that are committed to doing it the way they've always done it and clearly if you look at the data they're not going to survive and when you try to bring change in the church there are all kinds of roadblocks for really good sounding reasons but the church is still going to decline so to turn it he's a turnaround guy did it on the east coast now he's coming to the west coast but the thing for my friend is that he cannot he he only sees those difficult churches when there's a whole other layer in the Bay Area of churches that are growing explosively. This last week, um, the organization Transform the Bay for Christ mm-hmm. took 30 Bay Area pastors to Colorado to just let them meet others who are being successful. The church I belong to in Marin County, where you're not supposed to have a thriving, growing evangelical church, and ours is. And we're helping uh, another church restart itself. Uh, and that's going on all over in the Bay Area. So if you, you've got the eyes to see, uh, you'll see churches growing explosively. Well, what are those churches doing? They're tapping into uh, the millennial interest in ancient faith. Uh, they're very straightforward about the good news. People are desperate for some good news to overcome their anxiety. And they're, they're very committed to uh, God experiencing God. It's a, it's a joyful kind of worship service. Now, not that they don't make confession. There's room for repentance, and that's important. There's lament about the commission of the world. But overall, it's kind of bookended with joy from beginning to end. And there's a real sense, I think, as you're suggesting, of back to basics, 
which is maybe if if we're trying to sort of dissect some of the arenas where maybe the church has been at fault, that we've tended in recent uh, decades to overcomplicate things uh, and also try to bring in uh, Hollywood showmanship uh, techniques to the way we present the gospel, do church on Sunday, things of that sort, that perhaps doesn't resonate with millennials who see their parents um, maybe one of the last generations, uh, the baby boomers, to have enjoyed the, the financial benefit post-World War II, uh, make a lot of money, pay off their home, uh, live a secure life, enjoy a secure retirement. And now millennials are thinking, I can't even afford to buy a house, let alone think about how we're going to put our kids through college or, or pay for retirement. And so there's a sense perhaps of dissatisfaction they have with the material side of life. And they really want to get back down to basics. And let's face it, the gospel is no more effective than to get to the core of the message of for God so loved the world. The gospel still works. You know, It's the power of God unto salvation. Amen. And once that's released in a person's life, uh, that hope, that focus, that li- uh, light uh, changes everything. And you know, for me, I remember – uh, walking on to the campus after I became a believer, and it was like a whole new place. It was the same school, but I was different, mm-hmm. and I had a sense of mission. And honestly, more importantly, I had a sense of God's presence with me, that I wasn't there alone. You know, he was with me. And that's happening. Um, I was uh, recently at an IT uh, firm, went there at lunch with one of my, my friends, and the possibilities and the interest in spiritual things – how do I make my family work? How do I make my marriage work when it's not working so well? How do I overcome depression? Even though I'm skillful, I still am dragging depression. What's the answer to that? You know, sharing the gospel, caring for people, you know, good counseling, all those kinds of things. You need friends to do that. And I think that, that friendship element, that discipleship element is coming to the forefront of church now. As well as it should. I mean, at the end of the day, let's face it, if we had to reduce it all down into a, a, a phrase or a word or two, this is all about relationships. It's about God's desire to have relationship with his creation and providing the bridge, the gateway through which that might happen through Jesus Christ, that in relationship with him, we might be reconciled unto the Father, walk in fellowship. And of course, as that process at the disciple level continues, it's about building and making and creating and and sustaining relationships to help others in their own walk or relationship with God. So the R word is is fundamentally at the core of the gospel message. Yeah. And Our God is a God who makes and keeps covenant, which calls us to mirror that where we make and build lasting relationships. And we hang with people as they go through life and they hang with us. And that is so valuable. Uh, I've been in the court system a number of times where the attorney, on this first day of court, the attorney will ask all those who are there with the person who's under trial, will you please stand up? And what the attorney is looking for is to show uh, the prosecution, the judge, and the jury that they're not alone. Even though they've done something wrong, there's a community of support for them who will receive them back. That makes all the difference in the world. If somebody's in uh, a a convalescent home or a board and care home, if people start showing up, families, church folks start showing up, uh, the 
it's kind of like the water in the harbors race for everybody. Mm-hmm. All the boats race. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the nurses, the doctors, everybody cares more. I love that. Uh, one of my favorite stories is one that Rick Warren tells on himself. Uh, you know, church of 20,000, he can't go visit everybody who's in the hospital. So they have a, a system so that their house pastors go and visit and, and other deacons go and visit. Well, it just so happened a long-term member was in the hospital, and Rick was going by the hospital. So he stopped and goes upstairs. And apparently, kind of everybody in the Saddleback food chain had gone to visit and, and in, introduced himself as their pastor. Well, then Rick Warren comes in, and they didn't want to let him in. And he says, no, I really am the pastor. And so he finally got in. And that's the kind of feeling um, people should have. You got reams and reams of backup. Yeah, and and that sense of community is so critically important because, let's face it, um, our our – our arrival one day in heaven is not going to be a, an isolated solo act. Um, it, it's going to be the, the penultimate in yes. knowing what community is, yeah. uh, not just ourselves, but all the angels and saints all gathered together in this endless, as long as you can measure, times 10, um, gathering to praise and worship and, and be in the basking of the very presence of God himself. Uh, you mentioned a couple of, of notions there, and I am gonna, I'm going to take you up on one of them when we come back after the break. I want to explore a little bit deeper um, both the the historical nature of what appears to be the, the cycle of feast and famine or of falling away and great revival, where you think we are in that cycle today, and where we can find hope from a um, a forward-looking perspective from Scripture as to where we might be headed. With me today in studio is Dr. Rick Durst. He has a Ph.D. in historical theology and is currently the director of the San Francisco campus of Gateway Seminary. Lots of great information available to you on the web about Gateway and its offerings at GS, just think Gateway Seminary, gs.edu. We take this time out, back with more right after an update on traffic. Head over to the KFAX Traffic Center, 538, the latest for you as you make your way home this Thursday evening. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to the conversation with Dr. Rick Durst. He is a Ph.D. in historical theology from Golden Gate Seminary, now known as Gateway Seminary, and currently the director of the San Francisco campus of Gateway Seminary, beautiful campus in the East Bay. Well, we'll see if we can spend a moment talking about that a little bit later on in our conversation. But I want to circle back to this topic. We've been discussing this this recent uh, Pew Research survey that came out that talks about the alarming number of growth of the nuns in American religious life, essentially saying that between uh, 2007 and 2018, the date of this survey, that there had been growth from 35.6 million adults that say they had no religious faith to now fully 57.1 million. 23% of the U.S. adult population has no religious affiliation whatsoever. 
And, of course, that coming back full circle to the question, how is that? Why is that? What is the church? Uh, what should we, <coughs> pardon me, the church be doing to, to respond to that? And you, you alluded to something, Dr. Durst, before the break that I want to dive a little bit uh, deeper into, and that is uh, what I'll call sometimes the, the cyclical nature of all of this. Uh, the Bible, for example, from a prophetic standpoint, talks about in the end days a falling away, but also a great harvest. We've certainly seen periods in church history where there have been falling away and then great harvest or great revival. We mentioned off-air that last year marked the 500th anniversary of the Great Reformation, closer to our modern calendar, uh, events like uh, Azusa Street uh, and what happened there, uh, giving evidence that um, as much as we sometimes might be troubled by the numbers – God's got another plan, a bigger plan. Yes, and I I think you put your finger right on it. The gospel is God's work. It's his business, and he loves the lost. You know, when we say, be still and know that I am God, and that Psalm 46, you read that next part of the verse, it says, and what he's thinking about is the nations. God is always interested in the nations. So, um, his heart is always for the harvest, and he's calling out workers in the harvest. And wherever those workers are faithful, you'll see a rich harvest because God is at work. Right now, I think God is free to do that kind of work abundantly in South America, in Asia. And there's a shift um, where typically it's called Southern Christianity. The epicenter of Christianity on planet Earth is moved from the north and the west to the east and the south. And that's where those revivals are going on. A friend of mine just reported to me that in a Middle Eastern country right now, there's one church that just prays for anybody who's sick and they're having amazing healing. And the significance of that is that even the uh, Muslim mullahs are sending their sick people to that church. So God can break out in unusual, exciting ways to attract people to his son Jesus. And as we share the gospel, uh, it has its own power to convict and convince, and people are looking for hope. Now, they're not looking for a denominationally branded hope. They're looking for a real hope. And if denominations are going to hold the hope well, no problem. But they haven't been doing that in, in some of the, I'll say, liberal traditions. You know, they have come with a critical approach of Scripture, so people then are asking, what can I trust? They've taken away some of the fundamentals about Jesus, his virgin birth, and so forth. Well, then how much can I trust in Jesus? So people don't respond to that. The world is too tough to live in without a sure hope. Now, I'm not talking about uncritical um, assurance about something that hasn't been thought through carefully and rationally, but... Uh, to take away their hope, what can you? Know, where's the gospel? Where's the good news? No, there is none. And you make the gospel of no effect uh, when when you begin to water it down in that kind of fashion because of the 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 misperception that people aren't responding because it's an either a, an old message or an outdated message or one that is not applicable to modern living. You know, at the end of the day, if anything has been proven, we've seen that over the two thousand plus years. Um, since Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, uh, the power of this message to sustain and to replicate itself um, has happened. I mean, 12 ragtag guys 
got together and said, we're going to follow through in sharing what we've seen and experienced and witnessed. And here we are 2,000 years later. Um, so if, if anything, it has perhaps been the failure of the church as an institution and, and more specifically the more liberal branches, you point out, that sort of said, well, um, if, if there's been any sense of, of irrelevancy, maybe what we need to do is to um, repackage the message in a way that's less offensive which then demonstrates that all of a sudden you've pulled the power of the gospel out. No wonder people are not attracted to all of that. It's fascinating, I think, too, because um, you mentioned about the growth in these regions. Thirty years ago, that 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 global uh, 1040 window was a huge point of emphasis from a, from a, um, a missional standpoint for the church in America – and as we prayed and as we sent and as we facilitated, um, in particular, not just missionaries, but training nationals, it's fascinating to see 30 years later, here we are, and in those regions where sometimes, in spite of our best efforts, I'm thinking of like communist China, there has been such phenomenal growth and growth to the point where God is in the miracle working business, he figures out a way to get his message. If we're not effective at it, he'll do it himself. Yes, and it's humbling to us as Americans. We want to have our fingerprint on everything, and he's doing it quite well without us. Now, our missionary force laid a foundation, and when we had to withdraw from China uh, because of the government changes, um, God took it underground. God took it in small groups. And God used discipleship, which we've been talking about, and it just flourished. I carry in my wallet a letter from when I was in China uh, from a house church leader who's become – who is graduating, so to speak, to network leader mm-hmm. of house churches. And he just asked me to keep praying for him, for Joseph, that he'd, he'd be safe, he'd be faithful, he would be risk-taking in the right direction. And uh, so I just remember that, working with those house church leaders uh, and – it's the same anywhere you go. Uh, I've had uh, privileges of traveling another pl- a number of places outside the country. And to see the men and women that God's raising up. Well, I'll even say this about Fremont, in Fremont. Uh, you know, I have an office, and I have saints come into my office all the time who want to register students. I'm, I'm thrilled with the kind of people Jesus is nudging into ministry. Smart people, men, women, young, old. Um, all ethnicities, and uh, we've got a, uh, several Mongolians studying. I'm very excited mm. about that. We have a potentially somebody from Tibet is coming in. Wow. And uh, uh, Iranians. Uh, so God is up to what he always said he would be up to. And I guess part, part of this, too, is to understand and maybe have to, to, to deal with the reality that while we might lament the fact that the American church is not flourishing in communist China, here's the good news. God's church is flourishing in communist China. It's not about brands and labels and denominations. It's not about the Western style of Christianity uh, because the, the Western style, well, they're, they're, at the end of the day, um, the gospel is the gospel. It knows no culture, knows no tribe, no tongue. There's neither Jew nor Greek, right, as Scripture tells us. Maybe that's been our fault. We've been, to some degrees, so heavily focused on trying to promote our own brand that we forgot it's not about us, it's about him. Well, and part of, you know, when God humbles the people, 
we have the opportunity to get right and get straight with him. And part of the way I think God is humbling the U.S. is we were a sending nation. We're still a sending nation. Mm -hmm. We're still sending more than any others. To be sure. But we've also become a receiving nation. The nations of the world are coming. They're in the Bay Area. It's so amazing. You open the um, Yelp or whatever, you can find any kind of food you want to eat, um, any kind of clothing. And I love that about the Bay. But also, people are coming to faith in the Bay, and, and different ethnicities are starting churches. Those are the fastest-growing evangelical churches in the United States. But just recently, um, a mega church from Nairobi, Kenya, that has been incredibly successful at planting new churches in Africa are going to make Fremont a launch point for um, this kind of outreach that they're doing. So Kenyans are coming to Fremont to make a launch point for planting churches across the U.S., and they've been so successful at that. So we're now both a sending and a receiving nation, and I'm sure you've had opportunity to travel in Europe. Europe is desperately a receiving. It has to be re-evangelized. Um, it's not unusual to go up to a beautiful medieval church and you see the front of it, it's just gorgeous. But in some cases in Germany in particular, if you go around the backside, it's only the facade. There's just like a little shed on the backside because there's nobody coming anymore. Mm -hmm. So it's more cultural. Uh, when Notre Dame burned down, the reason it's going to be rebuilt is not for religious reasons. It's cultural reasons. Uh, France still pays for the maintenance of the Catholic buildings, uh, even though they're, you know, uh, e egalitarian. Yeah, society, yes. Uh -huh. Exactly. Yeah. But for cultural reasons, well, uh, if you follow the, when the cathedral was burning, one of the after stories very soon was there was a spontaneous line of people into the cathedral handing all out the the artifacts, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and the people in that line were all believers. Um, and they just form naturally to protect that history of the church. I, I like that a lot. Um, you, may, you don't know this about me, but I came to faith uh, kind of at the crest of the wave of a great awakening. We call it, you know, the Jesus movement. And I remember how easy it was to help people come to faith during those years. And that begat a number of denominations, and those denominations begat denominations, like Calvary Chapel. I was going to say Chuck Smith's church, absolutely. Exactly, and now that's mm -hmm. become reality. Mm -hmm. um, it's given to Vineyard, so it's, it's continued to grow and, and to explode. Well, I think as um, this issue of no belief, no identification, as that continues to grow as identifying with Christ in the public place is frowned upon. It's, it's archaic. It's, um, it's too traditional. You know, all those kinds of things. Uh, and it appears that in some places even the laws are changing to make it more difficult to be, uh, be a believer uh, successfully uh, and, or without pain. I'll say it that way. Um, as that continues to ratchet up and we start hitting our knees more, and humbling ourselves and praying, I think we can expect to see God pour out his spirit. Um, and it may happen in smaller bunches, but to reach out because God does, you know, he's patient. He doesn't, he doesn't want to bring judgment, but he will bring it. But he wants to see people come to faith. That's why the high price of Calvary was met. 
And, and if we look at the statistics here and this new research and, and certainly studies that have been done ad nauseum by George Barna that have, have revealed uh, some of the, the trends in American Christianity, the slippage, so to speak, um, you could look at that and uh, put on your sackcloth and ashes and, 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 and beat your breast and, and lament all of it and just stop there. Or as we've seen the church do historically in the past where we identify areas where there are needs – we don't say, isn't it terrible that these regions of the world are going to hell in a handbasket? Thank God we're not. No, we say, here are areas of needs where we need to go, send, train missionaries, equip nationals, do everything we can to be supporting and praying for the church in doing what it is that he has called us to do. And what have we seen? As a result, the church is exploding in the 1040 window. Communist China, 10,000 believers a day. And those are government estimates. They, they, they don't like big numbers under any circumstances unless it's how many new communists they've, uh, you know, they've indoctrinated. 10,000 believers a day, uh, people a day becoming believers in Christ in communist China. Um, similar numbers taking place across the African continent as well. Um, yeah, Europe continues to be a problem, but it's fascinating to see that as some of what had been sort of the the um, the epicenters of historical Western Christianity that have now made sort of that that shift from being um, uh, true biblical Christianity to cultural Christianity to nuns. Both in Europe, same trend taking place here. Meanwhile, the rest of the world that we thought were all the heathens have taken up the mantle of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Um, let me be self-serving for just a minute. In the fall, I get to teach church history. And one of the things I'm going to bring up, this last year, I think there was a historic event in relationship to the church, the Protestant church. Um, United Methodists. Um, made a decision, it, you know, the, the international meeting, and um, it changed direction as the African leaders took control. They had the majority. They had the majority of the membership, and they had the majority of the votes, and they changed the direction more conservatively mm. uh, with reference to, to ethical issues, to be more conservative. Well, that really has not happened in a major U.S. denomination since 1979 when Southern Baptists did the same thing. Uh, so that's a very interesting marker. The other course I'm going to be teaching is on faith and film. I have a partner in teaching this course, and uh, we were talking about it in my household last night. And one of the issues that came up is, you know, one of the major exports of the U.S. is movies and television Hollywood, shows. Hollywood, you bet. And then we watch in the Middle East when they protest against America, they will call us the great Satan. Well, the reason they call us that is because they watch our TV shows and they, they think that's what we are. Mm -hmm. And if we're that, then either we're giving them license to live like we're living on television or they have to protest against it. It's not good for them. Well, and let's face it, you know, not not that I endorse any of their 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 attitudes or or the way Islam in particular, you know, rages war against uh, the West. But from the standpoint of of them standing up or rising up against the tide of that and the fear of it influencing their own culture, you got to look at that and say, you know what, it it might be a systems of works that we know is, is, is void of the truth of the gospel, 
but at least when it comes to trying to set up a standard of of ethical behavior that they're they're setting some sort of standard where here the trend has been the further outlandish we can become um, the more Hollywood tends to gravitate toward it because it tends to mean more eyes and more eyes equals more money yes Um, on the other hand it's so interesting to me that there will emerge in the movie industry a film like The Passion um, that everybody says it's going to tank, and it's explosively um, uh, no, the best fun- best attended films of all t- of all history yeah. of all cinematic history. So, when the techniques of movie making embrace the gospel in a powerful way, people like that, and um, there is a core of committed followers of Christ across America. It's there. Everybody knows it's there. And they, we respond. We have money. We want to see a good movie. And if it builds our faith, that's a double value. <laughs> uh, so uh, there's a, you know, God hasn't given up on America. He loves America. He wants to bless us. He wants to bless all nations. But we're in this nation. He wants, and we ask him to bless it and to bless us and to guide it and lead us. And I hope that we can find our knees again. As a people, Amen, and, and that that certainly could be could be um, nation changing. It's certainly always life changing, but that can be nation changing. Um, that that Second uh, Chronicles seven fourteen perspective, boy, if we can just really harness that and understand what God means and his his directive to the church, his warning to the church, in that um, there would be no stopping us. There's no doubt about that. A word, if you would, about Gateway Seminary. Folks, of course, are historically familiar with the organization, Golden Gate uh, Theological Seminary, but now brand spanking new, gorgeous campus in the East Bay, um, new campus in uh, Southern California as well. For folks that say, Christian school here in the Bay Area, who'd have thunk it? Tell us a bit about Gateway. Uh, Well, we love being in the Bay. Uh, There's a church planting awakening going on in the Bay Area, and we want to be part of that in supporting it, providing leaders for it, training best strategies for doing it, uh, helping churches to revitalize. Uh, We've got great faculty in Old Testament. In fact, one of the fun parts of my job is to identify where resource people with persons with high academic credentials, but also ministry street credibility, Mm -hmm. I can get them into the classroom because then the students will like the scholarship side, but they'll also like the ministry side. So we have uh, folks from Three Crosses that teach. We've got um, from the East Bay, from the South Bay, just all around, all ethnicities. Uh, so the, the faculty look like the students. Leroy Ganey was pastor for years at First Baptist Vacaville. Clay Bonley Jr., Jeffrey Curtis from Mount Calvary Baptist in Fairfield. You know, just walk around the bay. And that's all God's doing. He has provided those people to train the people who are coming to the bay. And what's beautiful about that is not only, of course, as you point out, the importance uh, ultimately of the academic credentials, but that people are hearing from those who have in the trenches experience. Uh, there are probably no bigger complaint than, you know, well, I went to college or university, but, you know, my teacher 40 years ago did this job, and now it's all being shared from memory as opposed to, no, no, this is day-to-day practical experience that 
yes, has the, 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 the strong theological foundation to it, but it also has the strong real-world today, nitty-gritty, practical foundation to it as well. And that's, that's, that makes all the difference in the world, particularly for someone who is on fire for the Lord, wants to walk away with an effective education that doesn't just give them the initials behind their name, but will give them the practical understanding because they want to go to work right away in the mission field. They want, whether it be here or wherever God has sent them to, so that they can see their own personal ministry become fully effective right out the gate. Well, and most of our students are getting just-in-time training. I mean, what they're learning on Monday, they're putting in the pulpit on Sunday. So that's kind of fun to see. Um, Recently, we had a class on pastoral ministry, and there was a student in the class who God was calling, nudging towards a call to preach. And it was like watching a birth, only this was a fully grown man, a tall man. And as he, the class gathered around him, we prayed for him several times, uh, but also giving him time to kind of come out of the cocoon Mm -hmm. and uh, spread his wings. And it's just wonderful to see that kind of thing happening wherever God's at work. A ministry incubator, in a sense. I I love it. Um, Information available again about Gateway Seminary online at gs.edu. That's GS, Gateway Seminary, gs.edu. I want to thank Dr. Rick Durst. Um, the director of the San Francisco Bay Area campus of Gateway Seminary for dropping by. Thank Always you, a delight Craig. to spend some time with you, brother. Back at you. All right. We're going to take a time out. Eight minutes after the hour, we're going to find out what's going on traffic-wise there first from the KFAX Traffic Center. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.